So, <clears throat> Alistair McIntyre is a Scottish philosopher, moral philosopher, and also has written about philosophy and theology. He's a man of faith, um, which informs his philosophy, but it's, it's not, his philosophy is not primarily about that. But uh, he wrote a famous book called After Virtue. And his uh, opening uh, image is asks us to imagine a world in which science has been abolished. It's done so much harm, <laughs> it's just been abolished. And the generations have gone by, and science and technology have disappeared from common life. But the archaeologists occasionally dig up remnants of this techno-scientific culture that once governed, governed the world, and they pick up, uh, like we do today from the Stone Age, or they pick up uh, little um, signs of this culture. Could be, you know, the uh, instruction manual for a, a microwave or uh, something about, you know, a, a bit of a computer or, uh, and so on. Just little remnants. And so the uh, historians try to piece together the, this earlier civilization, techno-scientific uh, civilization, from these fragments. And he said, we are in a similar position when it comes to a moral view of the world or a moral universe, that we, have, we are no longer in a world view which has a, an integrated and commonly held uh, moral vision. And that's very obvious because we're arguing about moral things all the time, whether it's uh, the latest thing, uh, you know, the uh, genetic uh, research or abortion or all sorts of things that we argue about from different points of view. And we try to live in a respectful way, listening to other people, sometimes people do, uh, listening to and respecting other people's opinions. But of course, these are strongly felt issues and sometimes they create deep divisions. And of course, they can also become politicized. Politicians get hold of anything that threatens to create division, they will do so. So, um, and, and at the end of the day, what do we appeal to? We can't appeal as they did in the Middle Ages, you know, to the um, Holy Office or the Inquisition. Uh, uh, we, 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 we basically have to survive with some level of um, respect for each other. And at the end of the day, after many conversations, we might say, well, this is my point of view, and that's your point of view, and we'll just have to agree to differ. This is how I see it. So it become a subjective morality. So the only thing that can give unity to the whole thing is legislation. But then there are some things you can legislate about, like speed limits, and others which are not so easy to legislate about, 
such as care for the dying. So, uh, this is the world we live in. This is how he opens the book, and then he studies uh, uh, this moral universe. It gets a little more difficult than that. But then, at the end of the book, he has a famous uh, concluding passage in which he reflects on where we are today uh, and where we might be going. And uh, he's not, this is just a, an afterthought of the book. And he says it's very dangerous uh, to compare one period of history with another and draw conclusions from it. But there are many uh, similarities, he says, you know, bet felt between uh, the Dark Ages, the um, end of the Roman Empire, basically, and the beginning of the Middle Ages, this long period of, in European history when the old order uh, of, of government and law had largely broken down. And uh, it, it was this period of, 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 of relative chaos or reformation, anyway. So he said there are many uh, similarities and certainly a lot of felt similarities between our own time and, and that period. And he says there was this feeling at the time that the barbarians were waiting at the borders of the empire ready to pour in. This is perhaps how we uh, stereotype uh, immigrants today, um, and certainly politicize them, forgetting the value, of course, that they bring to our, uh, to our countries, and also um, forgetting that even in those uh, dark ages, the, the barbarians, and we mean those who lived outside the empire, were actually uh, gradually integrated. Uh, our image of them sort of hoarding up at the borders, ready to pour in and destroy everything, uh, wasn't how it felt at the time. Now historians have revised that uh, stereotype. So there was quite a long period in which they were integrated and assimilated and enculturated. But anyway, he says this is how we see it still. And um, he said this was the, the image of the barbarians waiting at the borders, ready to invade. He said, perhaps we have been governed already by the barbarians for a long time without realizing it. And that is becoming more and more clear, I think. The, um, he then goes on to say, uh, what, what hope do we have compared with what happened in the, that earlier period of history? And uh, he says one of the most powerful signs of hope that grew up in that period was, was the, the rule of St. Benedict and the life uh, or that was of communities that were formed in the spirit of that rule. Isn't that St. Benedict saw himself as the savior of civilization or intended to found this great uh, order 
which isn't an order anyway. Uh, but uh, he, was, he was imagining and experimenting and nurturing of forms of life based upon civilized values in a local way, in community, with a, uh, not only a moral, but a spiritual uh, purpose and meaning, with a vision of humanity as moving towards its goal in uh, union with God, uh, through learning to live together without killing each other, and learning to, learning to share, learning to care, and learning to worship and pray together in the spirit of the gospel. And of course, out of this experiment, uh, originally small lay communities, which they were. St. Benedict was not a priest. And the early monastic communities were actually quite resolutely non-clerical. They would admit priests into their community, but they, with a certain level of care uh, and concern, because they didn't want to be clerical. And anyway, out of this experiment grew what we, in, say, in the Middle Ages, became the great monastic culture, which for a thousand years uh, served and stimulated and, uh, uh, and, and created in many ways the, the world that we have inherited major institutions of hospitals and schools and even the civil service and economic uh, uh, projects, economic theory, uh, all grew out of this uh, monastic experiment. And uh, just as in pre-Chinese invasion Tibet, a uh, high proportion of the population were were monks, uh, which created a stability in the, in the population uh, growth. <coughs> in Ladakh, uh, population remained uh, stable because partly through monasticism and partly through uh, polyg poly not polygamy, what's the other one? And, and where you, where andro androgyny, is it? Polyandry, yeah, where one woman has many husbands. So, um, anyway, so he, Alistair McIntyre refers to this, this uh, response to the darkness of a declining civilization, the breakdown of values, the experience of being governed by barbarians, which you are well aware of. So here, he, he, he reflects on this, and then he says, what can we say today? Maybe we are waiting, maybe there's nothing we can do except to wait for another and doubtless quite different St. Benedict. And I think his, uh, his insight there uh, opens up for us a reflection uh, on the meaning of silence, which is the heart of, which is the meaning of contemplation, as something that is uh, relevant to the inner room 
of our own personal lives, but in the same way is relevant to the, the kind of world we are living in and creating. There is a direct connection between this interiority of the inner room and our experience of silence there and the kind of relationships we have, personal as well as social and professional and socio-economic uh, with others that make up a community, uh, make up a, a world. So our life today, both private and public, is operating under great internal pressures. And we are close, it could be, if you read the news this morning, to uh, a nuclear, uh, uh, nuclear violence, nuclear attack. Essential human values are threatened as the, our left hemisphere dehumanizes uh, human transactions and puts the human more and more at the service of the, of the system, bureaucracy, and exploitation. We are coordinator in uh, Catalonia and Spain Gave, who's an expert on artificial intelligence, gave us a brilliant seminar uh, recently at the Meditatio Center in London, which you can see online, uh, on contemplation in an age of artificial intelligence. Very insightful and very encouraging, really, because he says he's not frightened of this singularity point that many people are talking about where computers will become smarter than we are. He said, that's not what he fears. He, you know, he says, computers can't pay attention. They calculate. Computers can't meditate. Computers can do many things, but they can't replace the human. The only thing that could replace the human is the human being seeing himself or herself as a computer. In other words, if this happens, it's our fault. It's not that we have, you know, computers are going to, like in iRobot or that film, uh, or HAL in 2001, you know, computers are going to become devious and our enemies. It's that we are going to undermine and degrade ourselves. The ceremony of innocence is drowned, as, uh, as W.B. Yeats said in his great poem. Civility is ridiculed. Look at the way politics is being conducted. And news is unreliable, or truth is denied. Facts become alternative facts. And tyranny, in one form or another, is in the ascendant. The inevitable and perennial gap between the rich and the poor is increasing at frightening levels, at a frightening level, at a frightening speed. So much so 
that the rich are getting worried about it too. The very rich, the mega rich, are getting very concerned because the, the, the obvious uh, uh, result of this is a snap between different levels of society. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. But how poor are they and how rich are the rich? So in such a world, and there are good things happening as well, but we have to face the darkness of the age that we live in. In such a world, what is the inner room? What does it mean? Is it a place of refuge, a place of escape? And for some people, meditation may be a way of escape, a way of building a force field around oneself, and that's often how it's presented in the, in the media, the Hollywood image of meditation is primarily a way of being totally autonomous and self-sufficient and safe and, you know, superior to the world around you. Kind of a super, super human being. In which case it's not very far from other self-destructive fantasies like drugs or endless entertainment or pornography, all of which are ways of escaping. Escaping a world which the French novelist Michel Houellebecq, uh, in, sort of in a dystopia kind of way, describes uh, quite horrifically and obscenely sometimes, but very, in a way, accurately, when he, when he observes the way human, the, the capacity we have for cultivating relationships, human relationships, is, uh, is being... Uh, undermined or has been lost and you know we all remark on uh, sitting in a restaurant and the, the couple next to you or the group of people next to you are sit there having their meal uh, while using their mobile phones having no conversation at all or is this inner room a place, an experience, a dimension of reality in which we each rediscover collectively and in community not just an individualistic mindfulness, not just a way of coping or escaping, but where we rediscover something of the very simple, obvious nature of humanity in a community of love, <coughs> which means a, a common, whether a community in which, <coughs> which the common currency is love, care, reciprocal care, and kindness, respect, and faithful attention, and in caring for the weak and the most vulnerable. Basically, the community of love that 
St. Benedict envisaged, community of love that John Main uh, imagined, and that's what led me into the monastic life and into sharing his vision. And that's what our hope is for Bonveau, our new center in France, center for the whole of our now global community. So, which of these two uh, ways do, can we understand the inner room? Well, we've been clearly investigating the meaning of the inner room and the meaning of silence from the second and the more positive, creative, and traditional way of understanding it. That meditation creates community. Another great philosopher of the last century was Paul Ricoeur. And um, Ricoeur uses the phrase, the desert of criticism. And by that he means the public space of our lives where we feel an absence and a, uh, a deficiency in meaningful, ultimately meaningful exchange and discourse. In a desert of criticism where we are just deconstructing things, where we're just uh, satirizing things, where we just become cynical rather than healthily skeptical. And this desert of criticism, he says, we, we need to be, and we long to be, it's part of the feature of our age, the hopeful feature of, this, of our dark age, is that we feel called beyond this desert of criticism, beyond this state of meaninglessness and self-referential deconstruction, and we want to be called again. We're tired, we might say, using the language of, I've been using, of our noise and our loneliness. And we want to be called into another kind of desert, the desert of silence. And traditionally, when things go wrong, we look to the desert for the answer. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went all over the Jordan Valley, proclaiming a baptism in token of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the prophecies of Isaiah, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, clear a straight path for him. Crowds of people came out to be baptized by him. And he said to them, Vipers brood, who warned you to escape from the wrath that is to come? Prove your repentance by the fruit you bear, and do not begin saying to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. 
I tell you, God can make children for Abraham out of these stones. Already the axe is laid to the roots of the trees, and every tree that fails to produce good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. The people asked him, Then what are we to do? What shall we do then? Yeah, we know we're in a mess. We know things have gone wrong. What shall we do? This is the question we ask in the desert. And we ask the prophet. And he replied, Whoever has two shirts must share with him who has none. And whoever has food must do the same. Among those who came to be baptized were tax collectors. And they said to him, Teacher, what are we to do? They were among the worst. He told them, Exact no more than the assessment. Some soldiers also asked him, And what of us? To them he said, No bullying, no blackmail, and make do with your pay. The people were all agog, wondering about John, whether perhaps he was the Messiah. So, we go out into another kind of desert. From the desert, we've created the false desert, that we've created the false silence that we have created for ourselves, the noise that we've created. We, go, we have to go out, this is both personal and cultural, we have to go out, we have to make a move, and we have to do something. What shall we do, is the question that we, we are asking. John the Baptist symbolizes the bridge between the old and the new, the austere but authentic treasure room the storeroom, the inner room that is always open for our discovery, secret but always there in the open, where the student of the kingdom can bring forth things new and old. Political oppression and consumerism are two twin forces of noise and fantasy that threaten our humanity. I was talking with Susanna yesterday. Susanna and Josefa are here from Venezuela. And um, Venezuela is going, as we all know, through a time of great darkness and violence but I was very moved and inspired talking to them about what our little community in Venezuela is doing despite these conditions. They're teaching, of, they're teaching meditation to the young and their oblate community, cultivating in the midst of all of this noise and darkness and oppression Dictatorship could happen anywhere. Uh, developing 
a, and, and both preserving and nurturing a vision of life. This longing for spiritual life, for spiritual knowledge, for truth is resurgent even after oppression or technology or consumerism has, and the noise of that has suppressed it. And this longing for the spiritual is, of course, the great sign and the great hope for our time. And it's something that the church or the churches have not yet really recognized. Not entirely. They haven't entirely ignored it, rejected it. They did for a long time, I think. Anything that didn't conform to conventional religiosity and church-going was new age and so on. I think uh, it's, the mind is changing of conventional religion, but slowly. And there will be times of resistance. And we certainly know that we can't go back to the religion of our ancestors or of our parents. Traditional religion is over. But Paul Ricoeur believes, or believed that our world can begin to be remade through what he calls a second naivete of belief, founded on the remnants of the sacred that are left to us in the sacred texts of our humanity, our human family. In the first naivety, people just believed. Just as I believed in Father Christmas once. Now, Father Christmas does exist. But uh, now I know that Father Christmas took the form of my family members coming in and putting a pillowcase of presents at the bottom of my bed on Christmas Eve. That was Father Christmas. And one night, I, uh, one Christmas Eve, I actually woke up and, and saw my brother coming in to my room and, uh, and putting the pillowcase there. But I decided not to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, at a rather late age, I went to my mother and I said, because all my friends at school were all telling me, of course, the truth, I said, is there really a Father Christmas? And uh, she looked at me and uh, she said, do you really want to know? <laughs> <laughs> Which was the answer I was dreading, but also the answer that I needed. So, Father Christmas was shattered for me. But the love uh, expressed in, in that myth that I was, grew up with as a child, we, we need our myths, uh, that was real. But you can't, I can't go back to that. We can't go back once once it's been exposed. 
despite you know the huge consumer industry of nostalgia that wants us to go back or wants to give us a sort of feeling of going back to that uh, supposedly idyllic childhood. So we can't go back to that kind of first naivety of belief. But we can go forward with a second naivete, a second innocence. Father John says meditation restores us to our innocence. And that's a key concept of the Christian theological, mystical theological tradition. The uh, fathers of the church, some of them said, you, you recover your virginity through, through deep prayer. So we recover, but not by going back, but by going forward. And by learning to read and interpret the sacred texts, we have a way into that inner room. The key, the key work, I think, and the work that has to, has to begin is with, with meditation. But uh, a very, not only useful, but I would say necessary part of integrating that experience of silence is to be able to reconnect, to reread intelligently and meaningfully the great texts of the past. This collective rediscovery of the sacred, we would say through the text, the word, and also through the silence, through meditation, means also a personal work of recovering our own wholeness. This is a healing work we do for and with ourselves. Selfhood, coming to wholeness, the art of being human, is a task that we have to undertake. It's not something that's given to us through therapy, through drugs, through education, and certainly not through entertainment. It's a task we have to undertake and the health of society depends upon it. Just as the, the physical diet of a country determines the national health. The study of religion, in a contemplative sense, means that we seek the meaning of the ancient symbols. And we don't do this search just as a merely rationalistic argument about belief. These are symbols, not formulas, not computer programming. The origins of religion don't lie in belief or logic, but in dance and music, the belief Systems emerge from that. As Ricoeur says, the symbol gives rise to thought, but thought returns us to the symbol.
the churches are uh, anxious and frightened of their numerical decline, the terminal decline, uh, because they feel rightly that the, most people, the young generation, have largely lost the, the meaning of the sacred symbols that are involved in going to church. What does it mean to go to church on Sunday? Is that the answer? What's the point? I mean, how, how old are children now when they say, I don't want to go to church anymore? So, and yet, these same people, a little later in their lives, will quite happily undertake many of the ritualistic uh, and almost, in a sense, almost semi-magical rituals and uh, practices of other Oriental traditions while rejecting the traditional symbols of, of their own Christian or Western tradition. Because there is no connection between the symbol as it is exercised, as it is used or celebrated, and the experience of the inner room. In other words, it lacks this contemplative dimension that gives it meaning. Symbols may be verbal or visual or auditory. They're ways of expressing something that we have to accept we don't or only partially understand. You can't use or be part of a symbol or symbolic ritual like the Mass unless, unless you accept that you don't understand it. And if you say you don't understand it, this is a function of the right hemisphere of the brain to be able to live with uncertainty. But if you can't say you don't understand it, the symbolic celebration fossilizes, becomes stone. And you argue about, you know, and, and hate each other and condemn each other and throw each other out uh, over details of the service. A symbol is more than a sign. A sign is like a, you know, this way to just like the sign Jones on the outside of this building. Uh, signs are unilater unilateral, unisignificant. But a symbol in includes within itself something of the mystery, the reality that it's pointing to. You know how the, the cross or the crucifix, I think it's just the cross really, has become a kind of a fashion statement. I saw a picture the other day of some, some rock star wearing not just one cross, but uh, 20 crosses. <laughs> now, is that symbol or sign? I think it's become a, 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 a sign of a, sort of a fashion statement of some kind, but interesting one. A hunger for symbolism, but without any, but ha having been reduced, though, of course, just to a 
a sign. The voice of the sacred needs to be heard again. And symbols, symbols of the sacred, whether the texts or the rituals or the images, symbols reconnect us. They reintegrate our disrupted levels of consciousness to the inner room. They restore meaning to our lives. One of the reasons we continue meditating is because we feel that it is giving meaning again, meaning and purpose to our lives. It might be difficult for us to explain exactly what that meaning means. And the reason it's difficult is because we try to explain meaning in terms of ideas or answers. So the experience of meaning that you get through meditation doesn't give you the answer to what happens after life or, you know, uh, all these sort of uh, parlor game questions that we, we have. Because meaning itself is not about an answer to a question or a solution to a problem. Meaning is the awareness of connection. And the most obvious uh, example of that is when you're dying. People who die peacefully are people who have meaning in their lives. And the meaning in their life means that they have an awareness and a sense of connection to other people. First of all, to other people. This is, this is the time in your life where you want to repair or heal or forgive broken relationships, which you haven't done yet or you've neglected to do. But this experience of connection is not only with other people. Through other people, of course, it becomes an experience of connection maybe with what you have achieved in your life what you have given to your children or to, to others. And beyond that, to the society and the culture and the environment and to the cosmos. And the closer we come to the last moment, the bigger the sense of connection. Without that sense of connection, that experience of meaning, we will die Sadly, the purpose of life, in that sense, we could say, and it's not a negative thing to say, is to die well. To have found this experience of um, <coughs> connection uh, in time. And one very powerful and helpful way to do that is through the sacred texts of humanity to approach these sacred texts as symbolic networks of symbolism, which engage and catch our attention so that we can feel their healing influence. And that's a major challenge, a major challenge for us. 
Take a, I took a, some years ago, I took a, a couple of children to a, um, I don't know why I did, but anyway, to the uh, uh, <laughs> exhibition of Vatican treasures somewhere at some museum. And it uh, wasn't nearly as... And so I, I realized after five minutes this was not a good choice. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we went through the gallery and went on to something more interesting like dinosaurs, I think. Uh, but then one of the children said to me, why is everybody in those pictures having their heads cut off? <laughs> so this was how they saw these signs, or these, these, these symbols. They need, yeah, we have to... We have to uh, we have to be able to, to teach them and to put them into a new context, of course. And for that, we need a higher level of imagination. Father John says a challenging statement when he says, uh, imagination is the great enemy of prayer. And there's, you have to, I think we have to understand why, in what sense that is true. Because it's certainly true, it certainly echoes the apophatic uh, tradition of, uh, of, of, our, of, of theology, that we have to go beyond words, beyond image, beyond thought, uh, in order to enter into the deepest part of the inner room. That this is the first uh, of the commandments, have no, have no image, to go beyond images of God. St. Gregory of Nyssa says every image of God is an idol, and idols have to be exposed and, and shattered. Silence, meditation, is an iconoclastic exercise. It's not violence in the same way that the Puritans went round uh, smashing beautiful statues, uh, but you could see why they did it. Because the statues had become idols. They were no longer works of religious art or sacred symbols. Well, at least in their minds they weren't. And they represented a religion, a form of religion, that had become oppressive because it had become superstitious and magical. So smash the idols. But there was a sense in that. I mean, even what the Taliban are doing when they get a chance to blow up these beautiful Buddhas. There is an instinct in the human religious mind to smash idols, and it's a good instinct. But don't smash, you know, smash them interiorly rather than externally. And that's what we do in meditation. We can't meditate for any significant period of time without feeling at some point, I'm losing my God. As one of the Desert Fathers who resisted this teaching on meditation was reported to have cried out after he had uh, been drawn into the circle of the meditating monks, it's in Cassian and Conference 10, uh, Abbot Serapion, he, he, he fell to the ground halfway through the meditation and cried out, they have taken my God away from me. To whom can I now pray? 
They've taken my God away from me. To whom can I now pray? Well, that echoes what we were talking about yesterday, the false silence of God. Father Ferreira's uh, false, or, well, uh, genuine but false uh, struggle with what he see, saw as the silence of God who wouldn't give him an answer. Compared with what Simon Weil said yesterday, it is when God does not give us an answer that we begin to find the connection with God. So meditation, our meditation must and, and will take us through this iconoclastic experience. And a beautiful description of that is the Dark Night of the Soul by John of the Cross. And he uses quite uh, strong language to talk uh, when he speaks about the iconoclasm of leaving uh, the external world of idols and magical religion uh, for this contemplative uh, inner room. So, in this sense, Father John is right, and part of a tradition. We, imagination, the creating of images, is, uh, has to cease in order for us to enter into the inner room. But, Father John, like all the other teachers of the tradition, the tradition that we'll be exploring further in the seminar, uh, relate positively and reverently to the scriptures and to the rituals and to the symbols of our faith. And we today have to expand that as we relate reverently and respectfully to the symbols and the scriptures of other traditions as well. So, we have to smash the idols, but in smashing the idols, the symbol is revealed. So by smashing as it were, the image or the idol of God that we have, that we've inherited, that we've lived with for many years, that has shaped our own self-image and self-understanding, and, and maybe even created deep issues within ourselves. In, in smashing that, or going beyond that, is a softer way of putting it, we, we come closer to God. But we have to go through this experience of abandonment that even Jesus went through. We have to go through that atheism that Saint Therese of Lisieux went through before she made her final breakthrough. And this is hard for religious, I think for the ordinary parish church, uh, to put up on its uh, banner, you know. In, Outside of American churches, you have all these cute little signs. Um, you know, you know, little moralistic signs or, or you know, clever, witty, witty remarks. Uh, you know, maybe one day there'll be one from Meister Eckhart. Come to church this Sunday 
and pray to God to rid you of God. <laughs> so, we don't know how it's going to pan out, do we? But, we have to start with ourselves. And once we start with ourselves, we build communities which allow this to, to grow in society and in institutions wherever it may take us. So we need a higher level of imagination for this. Not fantasy, not magic, not superstition, not Father Christmas kind of myth, but, the, but a deeper sacred imagination. And with the imagination, this creative sacred imagination restored to health, what happens? What happens when we encounter an idol? We are dehumanized. We worship the idol. We are materialized or consumerized by the idol. All sorts of idols we worship, new brands and so on. But when we meet a symbol, we come into, contact, into living contact with the living God. And as a result of that, we are humanized, lifted to a higher level of human uh, existence, and we become aware of possibilities. We become aware of new ways of being. And that's what comes, that's hope. And that's why in the Dark Ages, the most important thing to generate is the light of hope. Not false messiahs, but who you elect uh, you know, for a short span of days, but uh, the hope that arises from discovering the vast space that is within our inner room and the tremendous uh, life that is there, that can heal, restore, and regenerate what is broken and damaged. So we have to smash the idols, difficult for religious people to do because they may be making money out of it too. We have to smash the idols in order to let the symbols speak. Silence. Silence of meditation is iconoclastic, and that's why it's a little difficult, but less and less difficult, but still difficult, to get churches to promote it. So the sacred texts, and we'll look this afternoon, we'll look, uh, we'll spend a little time just with, with one of the parables. The sacred texts are brought alive again. They are regenerated. Their symbolic life is, is, is re revealed through silence. Then the text, the meaning, the connection with the real that is contained within the reading and the listening and the hearing and the, and the sharing of this text with each other, that discloses a new world of possibilities. 
new ways of seeing the world. So I'm just going to end with the uh, parable that we'll look at this afternoon. I think it's the only parable uh, that Jesus told that he also explained. Happy are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Truly I tell you, many prophets and saints longed to see what you now see yet never saw it, to hear what you hear yet never heard it. Here then, the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word that tells of the kingdom, but fails to understand it, the evil one comes and carries off what, he is, what has been sown in his heart. That is the seed sown along the footpath. The seed sown on rocky ground stands for the person who hears the word and accepts it at once with joy. But it strikes no root in him, and he has no staying power. When there is trouble or persecution on account of the word, he quickly loses faith. The seed sown among the thistles represents the person who hears the word but worldly cares and the false glamour of wealth choke it, and it proves barren. But the seed sown on good soil is the person who hears the word and understands it. That person does bear fruit and yields a hundredfold or sixtyfold or thirtyfold. Maybe we can, in our quiet time uh, between now and this afternoon, uh, reflect on the, uh, how, how, how this parable, which is a very familiar parable to us, how it um, speaks to you at this moment in your life.